Next on the Public Radio Hour. What we're really missing is being able to come together and understand each other's perspective. Our interview series, The Hard Part, continues its conversations about police violence during Huntsville's June protests against racial injustice. We hear from Huntsville Police Captain Dwayne McCarver. And I think that's how we heal. That's how we're going to get better and spend more time talking. We'll also hear about the new 70-mile Singing River Trail that will connect North Alabama in a brand new way. This Saturday, the Huntsville Science Festival launches with seven days of all-ages virtual activities and free science and art kits. You create that spark for learning, and it's a lifelong process. And we'll dig into the convoluted language of the six proposed state constitutional amendments on your November 3rd ballot. From the WLRH studios, this is your weekly spotlight on special programs and homemade radio features. The Public Radio Hour, right after this update. Hello, listeners. We're back with another local episode of the Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Brett Tannehill. Our series, The Hard Part, continues its conversations about the violence of Huntsville's June protests. Coming up this hour, Katie Ganaway talks with Huntsville Police Captain Dwayne McCarver. John Carroll, chairman of the Alabama Fair Ballot Commission, also pays us a visit to deliver an Election Day primer on the always confusing, never plainly written proposed amendments to the state constitution. One proposed amendment would give lawmakers expanded powers to clean up racist language lingering in Alabama's 1901 document. This Saturday through Halloween, the Huntsville Science Festival goes virtual in its inaugural year. COVID can't stop the Science Festival, and it's all free. Joe Iacuso stops by to tell us about the great virtual workshops and free interactive sciences and arts kits available at HuntsvilleScience.org. But let's start with a look into the not-too-distant future. Plans to establish the Singing River Trail call for a new 70-mile greenway connecting Huntsville and other nearby Tennessee Valley cities. Imagine being able to ride your bike from Huntsville to Decatur. That reality is coming. John Kavach is Singing River Trail's executive director, and though the trail isn't quite a tangible place yet, all sorts of support and interest are pouring in from all directions, and so are all sorts of opportunities. John sat down with me in the big room to tell us more. The concept of it is is it's a 70-mile trail that will go from Athens to Decatur, Decatur to Mooresville, Triana, Madison, Huntsville. And the idea actually came from a pretty interesting, um, I guess, discussion a couple of years ago when Calhoun Community College had a second campus here in Huntsville. Uh, one of the trustees, Joe Campbell, was interested in connecting the two um, campuses by a trail. And slowly the idea of camp- you know, the campus connection took obviously form and lo and behold suddenly you have people that wanted to join the trail wanted to you know be added onto the trail and so it just kind of grew from there uh back in july of 2019 a master plan was created and uh that was really the beginning of what we would now call the kind of the formal singing river trail master plan and project that's one of my favorite things in life is when you're able to watch something go from something intangible, like just an idea or a dream, and go through that process of coming into something uh, tangible like this. And that's kind of where Singing River Trail is right now. How far along the path are yeah. you? And so um, 
that's usually the first question I get is like, oh my gosh, what a great job you have. Well, how much of it's done? Well, so... <laughs> <laughs> Not much. <laughs> so the good news is, is that we will be taking, uh, we will be, we'll be working with each of the cities and we'll assume part of some of their greenway systems. And so some of the greenways will, like Swan Creek Greenway in the city of Athens, will become not only Swan Creek for the city of Athens, but it will also become part of the Singing River Trail. So you're folding in existing resources Some of, this. In some areas. Right. City of Huntsville has been extremely helpful. Uh, Tommy Battle, uh, the mayor, has been um, very, very eager to get moving. And so that's been a, a great asset for us. But what I tell people is when they ask me, so where where are we and how long um, you know, do I have to wait? What I tell them is, is that the trail itself, all 70 miles, is probably 10 to 15 years out. But you'll be riding on the Singing River Trail within the next couple of years, if not even before that. So I, I would say you and I could take a walk on the Singing River Trail within the next 12 months. Might be a short walk, but we'll still take a walk. I think of greenways like this as um, a long piece of thread that can be used to stitch together different parts of a community or different cultural aspects of a community. And this particular thread, like you said, is 70 miles long and stretches across different communities in North Alabama. Um, and we've already done this a little bit, zooming into the future. Uh, let's talk about riding and hiking this trail when it actually gets to fruition. Where does it start? Where does it end? And what might you see in the beginning? If you can... Sure. Manage 70 miles. Yes. Well, you, if you can manage 70 miles, that's the, that's the goal. But I'd say the vast majority of people who are going to use the Singing River Trail will probably use it in small bits, two to three, four, five miles maybe on foot. Like from ten, here to there. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And, and realize something. All right. And this is something that's very important to understand. So a long format greenway like this is not just physical health and wellness. It's also mental and emotional health and wellness. It's a post-COVID uh, answer that we don't close. We're not, we're not having to beg money to stay open, um, that we're, we're COVID proof, that you can use it at social distance. But it's also an economic incubator. Um, right now, studies are showing that we'll probably have between 1,500 and 3,000 people a day use the trail, not just for enjoyment, but also for commuting. And realize, too, we live in a community where not everyone has a car. And so alternative transportation, being able to get from, say, downtown Huntsville to your job at the arsenal suddenly becomes a reality. So what what we're looking at right now from the master plan and from some of the estimates that have been created that yearly uh, Singing River Trail will create about $13 million of economic development. And that's just at the beginning. So realize that for a lot of small businesses that what you're seeing is an in, in interest. I've already gotten a, a bunch of phone calls from people. Where will the trail be exactly? Because I want to open a business. Where will the trail be? Because I want to buy property because I want to Airbnb. Where's the trail going to be? Because I want to make sure I'm there before it's there so I can take advantage of that. People may say that's speculation. Speculate away. I mean, that's why we're building this. I want you to get rich on the Singing River Trail. I want you to get healthy on the Singing River Trail. I want you to get happy on the Singing River Trail. Um, and so for me, this is the beauty. Of, this is the best job I've ever had um, by, by far because every day I get to talk about something that everyone I had in, in the last 60 days, I've had 183 meetings and I have yet to hear a single no to the vision of Singing River Trail. So I'm, I'm all in. I'm way to hear that, John. I mean, I, I follow along on Facebook and you can see the steady stream of people kind of jumping on board and, and pushing along. 
talk about some of the partners that you've come uh, come along with already uh, and h- how they found you and, and why they care about this so much. So, People really seem to care about this. Yeah, and they do. And this is something that just it, it does bring me happiness from a personal point of view, but it also brings me happy from a professional point of view because I'm here to build a trail. City of Athens, City of Huntsville, City of Mooresville, Town of Mooresville, won't upgrade them to a city yet. Uh, Triana have all reached out to me. Gunnersville has reached out to me. How do we get on the trail? Cortland um, in Lawrence County. How do we get on the but trail? But also a lot of civic and elected oh, officials as well. Absolutely. So realize this is public and private money and funding. And so for me, uh, TARCOG, which a lot of people may not know what TARCOG is, but it's a regional planning uh, commission. And Michelle Jordan and Sarah James um, have been fantastic partners to work with. In fact, they just provided me with $100,000 of a small of, of a revolving loan fund for people who want to start a business on the Singing River Trail. Um, Huntsville Utilities, I, I can't sing the praises enough of, um, especially with their easements and right-of-ways. Uh, very eager to help. How can we help you? Uh, Wes Kelly, who's the CEO of the utilities, uh, first meeting was uh, we are into trail building. We want to make this part of what we do because it's about bettering our community and, and creating a healthier workforce, creating a more satisfied workforce. So I can say to you, I have literally gotten a check for, say, $25,000 from a corporation, and I've literally gotten a check for, or or actually a a dollar bill from a person who gave me a dollar bill to help build the Singing River Trail. And so... It's like public radio almost. It's like people are just chipping in because they believe it. I always say the March of Dimes. I'm going to start using public radio. (laughs) Please do. Yes, I can do that. So we're here with uh, the executive director of the Singing River Trail, uh, John Kavach, here on the Public Radio Hour. And John, you and I have talked before about various things, mostly related to your background as a historian, yes. uh, and now you're the executive director of the Singing River Trail. Um, what is it about this project that suits your skill set and your interests? So people, I was a history professor here at UAH, and, and for a lot of people, I would run into, well, what is my kid going to do with a history degree? And I'd often tell them, well, if you want them to read, write, and be able to think critically and speak you know, cognitively, then you know, it's a pretty good major to have. Uh, so for me, what I like is, is that my skill set is I used to be a park ranger for the National Park Service on a 184-mile trail called the Sino Canal. I did not know that. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so for me, that's my, my passion for kind of uh, the idea of a greenway connecting people, uh, the idea of a greenway becoming an educational kind of center of, of, of people, not just traditional students, but lifelong learners, questers, people who want to learn more about life, that the world around them. And I'll give you an example is we always talk about saving the earth. And what I'd say to you is my goal as the executive director of the Singing River Trail is to get people outside. But on top of that, how do you tell a little kid to save the earth when they can't tell you the difference between a pine tree and an oak tree? And so we're going to have classes. We're going to have online classes. We're going to do things that aren't just about the trail, but it's about culture. And I think when you ask me, what's my skill set? Connector is probably my professional skill set, but my personal skill set is bringing people together um, and letting them tell their own stories. I think this is very important. Triana gets to tell their story. Mooresville gets to tell their story. The farmer in Limestone County gets to tell his story. And that's the part that excites me most is that what we're doing is we're taking something, our past, and for a lot of Alabamians, our past is kind of a sore spot. So if you want to replace a Bull Connor, if you want to replace something that you feel uncomfortable out talking about, let's replace it with something positive that we can be proud of. And so for me, this is the, I think the beauty of this job is I get to make Alabama even better. Um, I think we can be better than our past. I know we can be better than our past. And, and I'm here to help 
I think, tell the story of Singing River Trail, but also, obviously, make Singing River Trail a possibility. Yeah, I'm really interested in the educational and the storytelling uh, possibilities that, that this um, brings to us. I'm also really sort of fascinated with this idea of how a greenway connects to economic development, which that is, as we've discussed, that is a, that's an important component of that. Sure. So could you talk a little bit more about how economic development would directly relate to development of Singing River Trail? Absolutely. You know, the easiest example would be to tell you, hey, I have a popsicle stand. I know that it's going to be, um, you know, along the trail and people buy popsicles. That's the easiest example I can give you. But what I could also tell you is uh, uh, the average house price, if, along, if it's on, uh, you know, along the trail, the average price of a home goes up almost 7% uh, per square foot. Um, so think wow. about that. So you roll out of bed, you, you leave your house, and you're on the Singing River Trail. By sheer fact of being on the trail, you're already up 7% on your investment. There's something else, though, and it's not as tangible. So one of the things I want to do in the next couple of years when we actually have trail on, on site is I want to find a rural part of a trail that, that we've, you know, we've already created. And I want to ask North Alabama to divide their daffodil bulbs, and I want to create one mile of daffodils on both sides. Bring your bulb, plant them anywhere you want between, the, between these two stakes. And in two years, you talk about economic development. Can you imagine if we have a mile of daffodils in the spring? What does that do for tourism? What does that do for just the heart of North Alabama? What does that do for the collective good of who we are? And one of the things I feel very passionate about, and I talked about during my, when I was hired, I had a a public event that announced my hiring. My goal, aside from all the things I've told you, is how do we find the better, the, better, the better angels of our nature? How do we find who we are, not through how we're different, but how we're actually linked together so many different ways? And I think one of the things I want to be able to show and say at the end of my tenure at the Singing River Trail is that we made Alabama better because we brought people together. And, and I think those are the kind of things, opportunity, economic opportunity, is if you want to start a shuttle service where you start shuttling bikers and hikers and, and other people uh, along the trail, I want to help you. If you want to Airbnb your, your old farmhouse along the trail, I want to help you. If you want to create a popsicle stand, if you want to help me create a, a daffodil mile, and then you say, why don't we do a dogwood mile? And then why don't we do a tulip mile? And then why don't we do a mile of public art? I have 70 miles. I have two sides of 70 miles. So if anyone who's listening to my voice right now is interested in... <laughs> a mile of what could be this is where you can dream big we don't have to go small we don't have to go have these here we can do whatever we want and have a whole lot of fun doing it find more info about singing river trail at singingrivertrail.com You can also find links to the trail and other information you'll hear on the podcast page for this episode. Just go to WLRH.org and look under programs for the Public Radio Hour and then find today's show. Back in June, large parts of the country were exercising their constitutional rights of assembly and peaceful protest as they pushed back against repeated and public evidence of racial injustice. On June 1st and 3rd, and many days since then and into the future, there have been protests in downtown Huntsville. 
On June 3rd, a permitted protest event was held in Big Spring Park. When it concluded, a separate spontaneous protest came together with a peaceful march that ended up at the Madison County Courthouse Square. Police, fearing violence and vandalism in the downtown area, showed up armed and armored in riot gear. Police, fearing violence and vandalism in the downtown area, showed up armed and armored in riot gear. Protesters did not immediately disperse when ordered by police. A hail of tear gas and less-than-lethal bullets followed. Peaceful, law-abiding people were shot and arrested. All these weeks later, there is continued anger. It's a complicated conversation to have, but we're trying to create opportunities for understanding in an interview series called The Hard Part. In this edition, Katie Ganaway talks with Huntsville Police Captain Dwayne McCarver. Captain McCarver has been with HPD for 22 years, oversaw training for HPD officers and new recruits, and currently heads the department's Criminal Investigations Division. Captain McCarver says HPD officers receive more than the state standard of training, which includes crowd control, dispersal techniques, and tactical training. And in May of 2020, as the wave of social injustice protests swept the nation, he says he and his fellow officers were ready. We are always preparing. Um, We have a a unit called the Incident Response Team, um, and they train monthly. Some months they may not work specifically on what we call um, civil disorder practices, but they do routinely practice so that they're always ready because you never know when something like that could happen. Um, So they were already well prepared and equipped, and they knew how to respond. However, once there began to be civil unrest around the country, of of course, you know, we have to be, you know, cognizant of those things and and start talking about them and start doing some pre-planning. Our intelligence gathering really kind of sped up and, and went into sort of an overdrive to make sure that we were aware of what our community was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as we began to see that protests were being planned, um, well, then certainly our special operations division, along with the chief um, and the precinct commanders at the time, they they began to work on, you know, plans for different types of events that may go on um, and contingencies and all of those sorts of things. So uh, really the way that that pre-planning went is is with the Special Operations Division working in conjunction with those precinct commanders with direct oversight from the chief of police. So my next question is, were you there in that planning stage? Were you in the room with, with everybody there? Uh, no, not really. No. I, my role is the training you know, division commander. It, it really wasn't operational at that point. However, um, when those began, that was actually the very week that I transitioned over to the Criminal Investigations Division. We just wanted to make sure that we had sort of backup resources for whatever, you know, went on. So we did have some of our Criminal Investigations Division personnel kind of on a standby. They're just near downtown in the event that they needed more personnel. Can you talk about how extensive that planning was, how far back that started? Well, I mean, uh, for you know, the, specifically for the protests, I mean, as soon as we knew there was a protest going to happen, I mean, mm-hmm. immediately uh, planning began. Um, we're really proud of this community. We believe that um, Huntsville is, is really special and that, you know, initially, I don't think that we had a great concern that they were going to be violent or anything that, that you know, we, we certainly support protest. We certainly support everyone's right to speak out. And so, you know, initially it really didn't concern us a whole lot until we began to get some of the, 
we kind of call it chatter, you know, things you see on social media posts um, that begin to seemingly call for more aggressive types of protests. Um, You know, we comments like, you know, we're going to take down Sammy T's or, you know, different things that were just said that if we didn't take those kinds of comments seriously and prepare for those potentials, well, then we wouldn't be doing our job to protect this city and the citizens. So um, we began to ramp up our response, our, you know, our preparations, making sure that our IRT team, that incident response team was ready. Uh, also trying to make sure that we provided the space in the places because, you know, we wanted the protest. The protests, you know, that's our First Amendment. That's what makes the United States, the United States is what makes us great. And so we certainly wanted to be able to provide that for the community, but be ready in the event that it didn't go peaceful. Can we talk about the dispersal techniques, how those were planned? Um, How did you come to the decision to, not you specifically, but HPD, come to the decision to use things like tear gas, flashbangs, things like that to uh, disperse the crowds there? So, I, you know, again, I was not part of that of course. Mm-hmm. decision making, but I can just tell you as far as police tactics go, um, you know, the goal is, is that when you have a crowd um, and you believe or there's evidence to, to uh, show that it may become violent or um, it is no longer acting within the law, which just, uh, you know, to use that protest as an example, once the protest had been completed or or once the um, permit had run its time, they needed to reopen the streets and reopen sidewalks for people to use. So that's when, you know, at some point, once that permit's up, you have to disperse that crowd. They could continue to protest. You know, we have to restore the lawful movements of people within that area. So once that's given, you know, the goal is to always disperse the crowd with the absolute least force possible. And so that's why you use irritants. Um, I mean, that's why they're called irritants. They're, they're irritating, right? And so they, the goal is to only use the irritants. We, didn't, we never want to ever have to actually put our hands on people if we can keep from it at all. The planning for how to deal with the protests in the event that they needed to be dispersed was to use irritants and, and to do the things uh, that we could do to disperse the crowd, bring back order to the area with the least amount of potential for, for any injuries. And so that's, you know, the entire plan revolves around that premise. Mm. Can you tell me, were you were you personally there at those June 1st and June 3rd protests? I was not at the protest. No, I okay. was near, but I wasn't at them. And I wasn't in the command center either. So okay. I was uh, in a support role with other units. Okay. And... Have you seen video footage of either protest or both protests since Mm -hmm. then? When you watch those videos, what sort of feelings were invoked within you? Well, you know, you could certainly say, and I have a lot of friends that were in those protests. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know. On on the protester side? or Correct. On the protesters. On both sides. On both sides. Yeah. So, uh, you know, all the officers are are my friends and coworkers. And then I had just scores of friends that in the protests um and you know all of the ones that i knew were there because they had a passion for trying to make the world a better place right they were there for all the right reasons um and so i you know as i watched i was i was really torn 
you know, in my heart because I, I knew the, the hearts and the, and the minds of many of the protesters were, were, were genuine and they were there to help and, and make the world better. But um, at the same time, you could see those people who are not there for that same reason. And it's so unfortunate because they were really taking away the voice of all of those people who were there to do the right thing um, by, by becoming aggressive and, you know, um, you know, bringing guns. And it's fine to be uh, vocal toward the police. I mean, that's completely their right. But when they begin to, you know, pick up things and throw things and then we go beyond peaceful protest and that was uh, just to be honest it was breaking my heart because i knew the good people who were in there who were trying to do the right thing um and they were losing the voice we were we were losing what the whole protest was about from what i saw at the protests and the the videos i've seen i i didn't attend personally Mm -hmm. and what i've read uh, there were water bottles thrown at police and uh one person on june 1st was arrested for having a gun otherwise i didn't quite see uh, any real violence on the protester side before the irritants were launched into the crowds. Can you talk about uh, what you might have seen that I might not have seen? Well, there were certainly things that we were able to see. um, Or intelligence that you had beforehand. We did have intelligence that suggested the potential for different things, right? There was Mm -hmm. potential there. And it wasn't until the protest stayed into the street well beyond, uh, you know, what the protest was allowed to do. And then as, you know, we began to mobilize, or uh, that's a, uh, I hate that word for this, you know, as we began to bring our resources out um, in order to attempt to restore the order of downtown, um, you know, you could see the agitation begin to build. That's probably the point where there was the most discussion, um, you know, about how do we do this? How do we effectively bring the order back to downtown um, and, and to make it a safe place again um, without, uh, you know, creating a situation that becomes even more volatile? That was tough, right? It was a tough, tough thing to do. So what we saw and what I saw was that once we brought the resources out, they began to agitate the situation you can't really then just take the resources back out you know you 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 leave them there and you begin to make the commands i know the 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 commanders on the ground i've lost count of the number of times that they asked the crowd to leave the friends that i knew that were in the crowd said that they couldn't hear that and and we you know we understand and we learn from that but they did all that they could with the different bullhorns and the you know officers even walking the perimeter asking people to please disperse you know there's mm-hmm. been a lawful order but at some point you know they they didn't and we were seeing people start to in the crowd both nights are correct okay. yeah okay begin to you know reach into backpacks and pull out bottles and things like that it they were beginning to prepare, you could see preparations by some. Now, granted, the vast majority of that crowd was doing nothing of that sort, and they were doing nothing but peacefully protesting. But when we began to see those few things going on in that crowd, it began to make us realize we have to do something, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that became the point where it was, you know, at the point when we decided to use the least aggressive method to try to disperse them, which is the chemical irritants. I mean, what else can you do, right? How else would you disperse a crowd? That, that was actually a yeah. question that I had for you. Yeah. Is if, if you didn't have the option of using the less lethal irritants to mm-hmm. disperse the crowd, and you were in the position to make the call for that, what, what would you suggest if, if you were in that position? 
Well, that's the least thing you can do. So if you okay. don't have that option, the next option is is what you used to see, you know, um, prior to those being used. You, you march those officers toward the crowd to move the crowd. We don't want to have to do that um, because the, the, it really becomes adversarial at that point. So you're really so, saying there's no... There was no other option. Right. That was the, the least. That was the lightest option that we had is to use those. So, you know, the um, they look bad. We understand, you know, using using those chemical irritants, um, they have bad historical connotations, you know, and they look really bad. But the reality is, is that they're the least likely to really hurt anyone. Um, so they just they literally irritate your skin and your eyes. They make it uncomfortable to breathe because they irritate your even your mouth and your lungs. And so you just want to get away from it. And that's mm-hmm. the goal. And no one had to touch it. You know, we didn't have to grab people or push people or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, you know, that's why those were deployed. After seeing that footage of both the June 1st and June 3rd protests, can you talk on any lessons learned within the, the department? Well, I guess after everybody was there and had seen the footage, can you talk on that? Well, you know, I think that one of the biggest things was communication. Um, we, we, we've talked a lot about how do we go about making sure that everyone understood because we did have people that I believe legitimately did not hear or understand that they were being told lawfully to and, disperse. And as well, beforehand, uh-huh. um, there was some confusion on the end time for the June, June 3rd protest. Mm-hmm. Originally, you know, people understood it to end at 8 o'clock, and some people knew about the newer time, which was 6.30. Well, that's because some people were just listening to things on social media, and mm-hmm. that's where they were getting their information when the actual permit was at a different time, right, mm-hmm. than, than what they were so being the widespread, told. So the information was widespread before it, the true time could be expressed. That, yes, correct. And so making sure that we communicate those things to the public, because, again, I, you know, I think that all the people that I know that were in those protests, had they truly known what was going on and the ramifications, I believe that they would have all left. I mean, you know, they or, or at least maybe not left, but gone into a place where they were, again, able to protest in a lawful way. So um, I think that's probably the biggest thing, whether it's making sure maybe we hand out pamphlets or leaflets at, at the protest to let people know this, you know, uh, this protest is only authorized to remain in the streets uh, until this time after that time you know, move to other areas where you can continue to pe- protest, you know. And, of so course, those more, are some... more communication between p- police and protesters. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big problem in general, right? Can you so, talk on that? Right, absolutely. I think that's something I'm really passionate about because police are working hard to try to understand the community, right? Um, you know, perspective is so important. And, you know, we hear this saying that perception is reality. We hear that all the time. That has deep meaning. You know, so I, there are p- members of our community who really believe wholeheartedly that our police are systematically mistreating certain parts of our community. As the police who are doing the job every day, they don't feel that way themselves, right? Because they don't they don't perceive that from their angle. They think that you know, they go to work every day and they their plan is to treat everyone fairly and do the right thing. So both sides are right. 
because their perception of the situation is their perception, and that is their reality. And so what we're, what we're really missing is being able to come together and understand each other's perspective, and I think that's how we heal. That's how we're going to get better. That's truly how we get better is to just be more transparent on both sides right? and spend more time talking, mm-hmm. spend more time engaging with each other. Um, and that's really what community policing is all about. But we've got to do that better, right? We've got to step it up and, you know, let let the community have more involvement in what we do, and you know, make sure that our officers are more involved and engaged with the community. And and I think we're we're going that way already. Um, and I believe again, Huntsville is just like the perfect place to do this perfectly. Um, but we all we just have to continue to grow and continue to get better. That was Huntsville Police Captain Dwayne McCarver talking with WLRH producer Katie Ganaway. Hear this and other conversations about Huntsville's protests in our series, The Hard Part, at WLRH.org. Just look under programs for the Public Radio Hour. You can also listen on the WLRH mobile app. Still to come, John Carroll schools us on the six, count them six, state constitutional amendments on the November 3rd ballot. Always a confusing topic. And Joe Iacuzzo with Huntsville Science Festival gets us psyched up for science this weekend and tells us how to get free science and art kits. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. To help us meet our goal of 100 new sustaining members in October, we've partnered with This American Life to offer a special thank you gift just for new sustainers. Ira Glass picked out 50 of his favorite episodes and is providing them for download to new WLRH sustainers. To get this special thank you gift, click on the blue donate button at WLRH.org and make your sustaining pledge of $5 a month or more today. The first debate was chaos. The New question Supreme is, the radical question, left. Will you shut who is up, man? Listen. The second one was canceled. Now, former Vice President Biden and President Trump face off one last time before election night. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us Thursday night for NPR's special live coverage of the presidential debate from NPR News. That's coming up tonight, beginning at 8, here on the Main Signal. Member supported, 89.3 HD1, Huntsville Public Radio. This is the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of WLRH, Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. I know I'm not the only one still just a bit disoriented by our new COVID reality. The only way to do some things now is virtually. And this Saturday marks the launch of the inaugural Huntsville Science Festival, where you, your kids, your grandma, and anyone else interested in science and the world around us can join the fun online. It's a week-long virtual event packed with workshops, presentations, interactive learning activities, and much more, and free science and art kits. That brings the festival hands-on right into your home. Joe Iacuzzo helped lead the charge to take the Huntsville Science Festival from conception to reality. A science festival is a generally a week-long series of events that engage most of the community in a celebration of the science and technology that exist in the community. These events are always and have been in past science festivals that I've been involved with in-person events. In fact, this year we intended to be at the Von Braun Center for our STEAMFest 2020 on October 31st. 
Unfortunately, with the pandemic, we had to cancel all of our in-person events. But fortunately, the tremendous support from local companies and organizations drove us to develop a virtual festival that will adhere to a week-long schedule of special events, many of them live, some pre-recorded, but all the events you'll have an opportunity to interact with the presenters, the scientists and researchers who are putting this great information out there. Why do you think people felt it was so important to move ahead, even if it was in a virtual fashion? Well, there's a couple reasons, Brett. Um, first off, I think there's, they saw a need for um, engagement with the community on STEM, particularly in this time of pandemic. We do tend to focus on students, although we encourage everyone of every age to participate in festival events. In fact, there are some that are geared specifically towards adults. But um, they, they see this as workforce development by inspiring young people and other people to engage in STEM education and pursue a career in STEM. They're helping their businesses, especially here in Huntsville, which is why there's been such a drive to keep this going. What were some of the biggest challenges uh, that you did not anticipate in putting together something like this? A pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Post-pandemic, what was the big challenge? The biggest challenge was finding people who had some experience that I don't have in creating virtual events. For example, our team of um, event producers has evolved from people who do public gatherings to people who are website developers, video developers, and editors, so that all of our virtual content can have that interactive component that's so important to a successful virtual festival. So all sorts of presentations uh, are involved with this, including a presentation on squirrels. So what can we expect from this particular presentation? I actually just got the video on the uh, squirrely science, and it is remarkably interesting. Uh, The scientist behind that, Dr. Amanda Kelly, is fantastic and engaging. And uh, I think people who participate in that and then have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Kelly after the presentation are going to be really pleasantly surprised at what they learn about squirrels. So, like, take us through this presentation. Uh, maybe we, we can pretend we're going to watch the presentation on squirrels. What exactly can people expect? How do they interact? How does that work? Well, without giving too much away uh, about the actual uh, program, there is behavior that squirrels exhibit that is surprisingly sophisticated, and um, Amanda has illustrated that very clearly in a very uh, engaging way, and um, I think that everyone is going to just love watching that. So they watch you. You, you log on uh, to the festival. Uh, you go into a presentation. You watch a presentation, and then you're able to interact with the presenter. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Her uh, – Amanda's presentation on squirrels is about 17 and a half minutes long. At 17 minutes and 30 seconds, she'll come on live and you can ask her questions. You can uh, type in questions or be on a video uh, link with her. 
And not to confuse you, dear listener of the Public Radio Hour, uh, the Huntsville Science Festival is about more than just squirrels. There's all sorts of things, dinosaurs, rockets. I mean, there were there was a long list of presentations. What are some of the other ones that you think uh, will be especially interesting? Well, um, Northrop Grumman has been kind enough to provide hundreds of robot kits that they will then have a presentation on Saturday, October 31st with one of their engineers who will walk you through building these robots and discuss the science and technology and engineering behind how this little robot works. And and I was going to ask you about this. Is this the free uh, arts and sciences kits that that are available through the festival? Yes, it is. Another one we have is um, the Botanical Gardens has provided a, a pollinator garden kit and um, radio bro corporation has provided umbrella bag rockets which are really cool you build a three-foot rocket that flies so uh, to get one of these free uh, art and science kits uh, age limit can i can i sign up to get this i wouldn't mind getting a rocket absolutely brett and we encourage everyone to get a kit and we are very fortunate in that the Huntsville Madison Library System has agreed to distribute the kits for us. You can contact the library. They will actually do curbside, socially distanced delivery of the kit out to your car. What are your expectations, Joe, for the Huntsville Science Festival? Like, let's live in the in a dream world here for a moment. How would the festival change Huntsville for the better in, 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 your, in your best estimation? Um, engaging the community is a fantastic way to uh, create a sense of the importance of science in everyday life. And that's really what we attempt to do with science festivals. We're actually part of the Science Festival Alliance out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and uh, MIT, it's easier to say. And um, they support us. Local companies support us. PPG is one of our main sponsors. Um, We have companies like Hudson Alpha. They're doing a genetics, a live genetics, uh, family genetics talk on Wednesday during festival week. Um, We have... um, Radio Bro Corporation doing the rocket one. We have scientists from all over the country participating. The Megarex talk, I think, will be particularly interesting for younger people and anyone who likes dinosaurs. And finally, why is it important for a community to foster and nurture a love of science? In the world that I've worked in, in informal science education, sparking an interest in STEM and STEAM in especially in students has always led to positive results you you create that spark for learning and it's a lifelong process then and that's why we do this that's why this is all free we are a nonprofit and there's never a cost. Next year, when we go back to live events, people can expect to come to the von Braun Center and not be charged and see lots of wonderful things. That was Joe Iacuzzo with the Huntsville Science Festival. The inaugural Huntsville Science Festival begins Saturday with a workshop titled How to Be an Amateur Astronomer, hosted by the cool folks at the Von Braun Astronomical Society, VBAS. The festival runs through Halloween. Get the schedule and one of those free science and art kits at HuntsvilleScience.org. Thanks so much for tuning in the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. 
The big election day is drawing near. The last day to apply for an absentee ballot is October 29th, five days before the election. As usual, your November 3rd ballot includes a chance for you to vote on a set of proposed amendments to our state constitution. And as usual, it is not easy to read the amendment language and understand exactly what you're voting for or against. Thank goodness there's help to be found. John Carroll, chairman of the Alabama Fair Ballot Commission, spoke with Katie Ganaway. So your background is in law, John, and you served as a U.S. magistrate judge for the Middle District of Alabama for 14 years. Is that correct? That's correct. And you have served on various committees and commissions, as well as working with the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. So can you tell us about your role as chairman of the Alabama Fair Ballot Commission and your duties in overseeing the translation of the text from the state legislature into easy-to-understand language and the amendments that were going to be voting on on November 3rd? Sure. The Fair Ballot Commission was created by the legislature to help the voter understand the impact of constitutional amendments that appear on the ballot. And the way we've worked is we will get the constitutional amendments from the Secretary of State, and then we create drafting committees composed of all of the members of the commission. The drafting committees then draft fair ballot statements for us to look at, Then there's a meeting of the full commission where we consider the draft ballot statements. We make changes to them. We then end up approving a fair ballot statement that will then appear uh, on the Secretary of State's website, and various probate judges also include them on ballots in their particular jurisdiction. So there are definitely ways that people can go out and look at the ballot before they head to the polls or request an absentee ballot. Yes, the Secretary of State's website has the fair ballot statements posted on them uh, under the elections tab. All right, so let's start with the First Amendment. Um, That would change the word every to only when referring to which citizens may vote in Alabama. And some say that's just a word change with no action behind it. How do you interpret the language in this proposal? That was certainly the conclusion of, uh, I think, the Fair Ballot Commission. If the ballot measure passes, it will give the right only to those U.S. citizens. Right now, it gives the right to every U.S. citizen. So you would agree that it's just a word change? Yes. Okay. Let's go on to Amendment 2. This one is kind of tricky. It has six parts to it, and it's a judicial restructuring amendment. Among the six subjects covered are a proposal on the transferring of power to whom may appoint whom on the Judicial Inquiry Commission and the Court of the Judiciary, which hears complaints about the Supreme Court. That's correct, right? It's about the appointment of the administrative director of the courts. Also covered in the changes is uh, county versus city court operations. These provisions do deal with the legal process, but the points greatly vary. So what should voters consider when they weigh whether they should mark yes or no? You know, I think the the, the ballot statement really does set out the major issues. And, and if the amendment is granted, then this legislation that appears in the amendment will then become law. And so uh, I think it's worthwhile to at least run through some of the provisions as the fair ballot statement outlines them. The first would have to do with municipal courts. It's hard to tell whether that would have much of a significant impact at all because most municipalities that have municipal courts, the default position is that a county district court holds municipal court there. Doesn't seem to me to be a major change. 
obviously allowing the Alabama Supreme Court rather than the Chief Justice to appoint the Administrative Director of the Courts is a change. Presently, the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court appoints the Administrative Director. This would take it out of his or her hands and make it a decision of the entire nine-member court. The next is increasing the membership of the Judicial Inquiry Commission. The Judicial Inquiry Commission is the body that investigates charges against judges. There are currently nine members, and this would increase it to 11 members. Currently, the Judicial Inquiry Commission has jurisdiction over both municipal court judges and probate court judges, but they are not represented. This would give them representation on the Judicial Inquiry Commission. The next is allowing the governor rather than the lieutenant governor to appoint a member of the court of the judiciary. That's not a major change. The court of the judiciary hears cases that comes from the Judicial Inquiry Commission. Uh, and so this really doesn't increase the size of the Judicial Inquiry Commission, really doesn't have a significant impact. The one that really does make a fairly major change is the provision that keeps a judge from being automatically disqualified from holding office simply because a complaint was filed with the Judicial Inquiry Commission, which then goes to the court of the judiciary. As it turned out, we were one of the few, if not the only, state that did that. This still allows a judge to be disqualified from actually performing his job as a judge while his charges are pending, if there is a reason to believe that that's something that ought to be done. It simply removes the disqualification automatically. So Amendment 4, uh, that is constitutional reform. Alabama has the world's longest constitution that has more than 900 amendments. It was established in 1901. The language in the state's constitution would be updated uh, if a yes vote were the majority and translated to reflect Alabama in 2020 as opposed to Alabama in 1901. So how would a yes vote restructure Alabama's constitution in 2022? The amendment is very carefully drafted to limit what is going on. So the constitutional amendment, if it passed, would authorize the legislature to remove that racist language that you were talking about, remove language that's been repeated and no longer applies. I mean, obviously, the Constitution was written in 1901, and there's language that needs to be taken out of it. It would consolidate the amendments related to economic development, and then it would reorganize local amendments so they were grouped by the county to which they apply. Uh, I think the important thing to remember is, though, even if this passes both houses of the legislature, it has to go to the voters, and the voters would ultimately decide whether they wanted these changes or not. So the legislature can't do anything unless the voters of the state approve it. Right. And... If it does get a yes vote, a majority yes vote, that's going to be passed on to a couple of different agencies. The duty would go on to the Legislative Services Agency with assistance from the Alabama Reference Services, and they would propose that draft. They would clean up the the Constitution. Can you talk about those agencies and what their duties will be? You know, those agencies all the time propose drafts of legislation to to the state legislature. So this isn't anything different than something that goes on almost all the time, which is those agencies draft bills based on what the legislators tell them they want, then send them back to the legislature. They operate as a sort of agency assistance to the state legislature. And and that draft, though, would then go from them to the legislature for the legislature to approve it and debate it. And then if the legislature approved the changes, 
it would then go to the voters of the state. Moving on to Amendment 5 and 6, uh, each of these deal with church security in both Franklin and Lauderdale counties. And a little bit of background info, after a church shooting in Texas in January of this year, uh, State Attorney General Steve Marshall reminded Alabamians in a letter that the Stand Your Ground law already applies to churches that do not expressly prohibit carrying a firearm on their private property. All Alabama voters will check yes or no on their ballot for these, but the result would only affect churches in those counties, Franklin and Lauderdale, not statewide. Why is this vote not more localized to those areas, but rather is up for a statewide vote? And why do they add to the law that already exists? The legislature gets to decide whether a constitutional amendment of local application, which these two are, goes on the statewide ballot or simply goes on the ballot in that county. And for whatever reason, they decided this would go on the statewide ballot. You know, whether or not this is necessary or why it it was proposed, I think apparently the folks in these counties felt more comfortable if there was a constitutional amendment that specifically said the same thing the attorney general said. And would you say this is a a normal thing when you have an amendment show up on a ballot that only affects one or more counties, not the entire state? It is, It quite frankly, in the course of Alabama constitutional amendments is not unusual. It doesn't happen all the time, but these certainly are not the first ones that I've seen. And one final question. The amendment language on ballots can ultimately be confusing for even the most intelligent people. Some people think long and hard and they pick yes or no, and some may get frustrated and just either not vote on them at all, or they might randomly pick yes or no. So what is your advice on how citizens can cut through the jargon and avoid confusion? I think if they will read these fair ballot statements, we have done the best job that we possibly can helping the average Alabama voter understand what these constitutional amendments are. There are also other resources. For example, the Public Affairs Research Council of Alabama, which is here in at Sanford University, also has published something about the proposed statewide amendments. It's available on their website, and there are other neutral organizations that do the same thing. So I think there's lots of opportunities for voters to get educated on these constitutional amendments. Thanks to Katie Ganaway and John Carroll with the Alabama Fair Ballot Commission for being on the show. Also, big thanks to John Kavach with Singing River Trail and Joe Iacuzzo with the Huntsville Science Festival, celebrating its inaugural event this weekend through Halloween. Check it out at HuntsvilleScience.org. And thanks to Huntsville Police Captain Dwayne McCarver for being part of our interview series, The Hard Part. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can find a podcast of this episode on the WLRH Facebook and Twitter pages and at WLRH.org. And you can also listen, as always, on our mobile app. Safety and health to you all. Talk to you next time. And thanks for being a supporting member of this station and creating a platform where local community conversations can be had. This is Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand, conductor of the Aeolians. If you want your community to have access to a rich, in-depth resource for news, music, and events, please support WLRH now during its fall fund drive. You can also pick up the newest CD by the Aeolians as a thank you gift. Become a sustaining member today by donating to WLRH.org.